0: Before I begin, I did want to kind of share a little bit about some of the experiences that I go through, especially as we even go through the book of Genesis the first few chapters, and as we approach the doctrine of man, I was talking with someone and we got to it it became a debate and i don't i don't, I don't start talks looking for debates and then afterward uh it just went to what is truth? I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) Why why do we devolve or go down into a place where we're asking what truth is? And I thought that was quite fascinating because when you ask what is truth, that's exactly what Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. And so when Pontius Pilate was faced with the absoluteness, the purity of the truth of Jesus Christ, He was able to ask him, what is truth? I find that so ironic. But then as we got to talking, I realized that this person didn't want to know the truth. They wanted to ask the question. And we eventually got to a place where it was said that, well, it's not fair because like you're an expert on this. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? I thought the search was for truth not if i'm the expert or not and i never claim to be an expert on the matter and so one thing i have realized is even if the truth is staring you right in the face you can say what is truth and i find that fascinating when we come to a place like this it's a place where god has designed for us to be revealed with the truth We open the Word of God, and it's God's revealed truth to us. And I hope we don't go home still thinking, what is truth? I think that would be a very sad state of affairs. And my hope and prayer for our church is that if you are really asking the question, if you really want to know the truth, why aren't you searching? And so this is the question I posed. If you really want to know the truth, why aren't you searching? If you believe that that question is legitimate, it is genuine, and you're asking what is truth, why aren't you pouring every single fiber of your being to find out what is truth? Because isn't that the seminal, most important question of your life? If it is truly a genuine question, what is truth, then shouldn't you be pouring out everything you have to find out what truth is? Instead of asking, what is truth? And what does Pontius Pilate do, by the way? He goes, what is truth? And he just walks away. And then he has Jesus flogged and crucified. Mind you, Pontius Pilate was the person that first said, I find no fault in this man. But he still hasn't flogged. He still has him crucified, and we still remember him in our Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ suffered and died because of Pontius Pilate. And so I think that's the predicament that we are in if we really think we can come to a place like this and merely ask, what is truth, and then walk away. Because what is the result of just simply walking away? Are we any better than Pontius Pilate? And so I pose that question to you as a pastor and as someone genuinely also concerned for your spiritual welfare. And I hope that as we read the word of God, we recognize this is the place God has designed for his truth to be revealed. So praise the Lord for that. So as we begin, let us start with a prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that we have come to a place not simply of just learning, but a place of recognition, a recognition of your revealed truth in Jesus Christ. Open our hearts, open our minds, that we may be able to see, that we may be able to hear, and we may be able to live. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let us turn to Genesis chapter two, verse 10 to 25. Genesis chapter two, verse 10 to 25, and you can find that in your pew Bibles on page two. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the, on the, of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I've begun the series sharing about what's wrong with the world today. Perhaps it is that we do not understand some of the basic, most foundational principles about mankind. And what we are made for. And when we start to understand, we see, wow, we have pushed back so much against not just, let's say, some random part in an epistle by Paul, but it goes all the way back to Genesis 1-1, where we have pushed back even against the premise that God created the heavens and the earth, because in the beginning was God. And so we have come to a place now in chapter 2 where this is a second part of the series of the doctrine of man or anthropology. And in part 1, we saw how Adam came to be. He was made from the earth. In Hebrew, it's Adama. right? And that's why his name was Adam. Because Adama is earth or the dirt or dust. And Adam was taken out of the dust. But he was made from the earth. And then breathed into now this is a fascinating concept about humanity because what we are being shown and it was what we are being shown is to make more clear what chapter 1 meant than when we read that man male and female were made in the image of God male and female man they were made in the image of God, and here we are seeing something more clearer about what that means. And so in chapter 2, verse 7, we see that God had fashioned man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. If chapter 1 clearly showed the theocentric view of creation, that means God-centered view of creation, by the time we get to chapter two <clears throat> excuse me, it is more of an anthropocentric view. That's man-centered. And this is the perspective that we are being shown. If chapter one was the perspective, a theocentric perspective, this is now a more man-centric perspective. And this is nothing, nothing like what we've seen, even in modern day or all the way in ancient times. The argument that was posed that before science, whatever that means, before science, that we had, all, we had this geocentric view of reality. And now, because we realize the earth revolves around the sun, we should adopt a heliocentric view. But the Bible, at least in chapter 1 and chapter 2, does neither And the ridiculous thing about advocating for a heliocentric versus a geocentric reality is that they're both wrong. The sun, we find out now, is also traveling and it actually has an orbit. What is the sun orbiting around? A supermassive black hole in the middle of our galaxy. So now what? Now that we have this knowledge, should we adopt a black hole-centric view of reality? But enough of this kind of review. When you put Genesis 1.1 and 2.7 together, you start to see something quite spectacular. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I said that the ancients would have recognized this statement as God created the supernatural world and the natural world. That's the heavens and the earth. And so if you look at Now, at chapter 2, verse 7, man, in his creation, in God's creation, has both those elements. But it's not simply just a case of the heaven and the earth. The picture that we see is that we would see the ground being lifted up and the breath of God being lowered. And that's how man is created. The ground gets lifted up and the breath of God lowered in order to create man. And this is evidenced in Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, where David says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The ground is lifted up and the breath of God is lowered, and that's man. Man then should be seen as someone or something between, even, heaven and earth. There are the heavens, and there's the earth, and right smack dab in the middle is man. And so in multiple dimensions, more than one, chapter 2 is, what I am saying, an anthropocentric view of creation. And if we realize this, then the purpose of man, you can expect to be quite significant. And this is why work is such a special part of a person's life. It's shown to us in God's word that work is dignified and purposeful. And I believe this is why many Christians ask the question, especially when it comes to taking on a job or a career path or where you should live, where you should move, the question that many people ask, even me, is, is this God's will for me? Is this God's will for me? Is it God's will for me to take this job or go on this career path or move to this town? I want to take a little bit of time on this. I heard a respected pastor share once one of his counseling instructions to a member of his church, and I thought that it would benefit us here. The member involved was a woman who had an unbelieving spouse. So she was a Christian, and he was not. And she waited years and years for her husband to convert. And it was very difficult because she had yearned to grow together in ministry, in faith, to journey together. And I'm sure that's the dream of many of you as well. But after many years of waiting, she could wait no longer, and so she divorced her husband. And the husband was distraught. He begged her to take him back. And so she came to R.C. Sproul and asked him, what is God's will for me? Now, one way we can categorize God's will is into three basic categories. It's just one way. One is the decretive will, and that's pointing to the absolute will of God. That's when he decrees something It cannot be denied. For example, let there be light and there was light. That's his decretive will. That's an example of it. The next would be his preceptive will. This is the law of God, precepts. And this is what pleases God because it reflects his character. The law of God reflects God's character. That's why we understand that obeying God pleases him. And the third one I'm going to categorize, and it's a little bit broad, but for our purposes here, let's call it the hidden will. And this is the will of God that has not been revealed to us for whatever reason. Things like, when is the next world war? I don't know, maybe we're in it, but when is the next world war? That we don't know. We know that God already has it in his sovereign plan, so that is in his hidden will. Or the second coming of Jesus Christ. These things have been hidden from us. So when someone asks me, for example, should I take this job, is this the will of God, it could very well be the hidden will of God and that he will not reveal it to us for whatever reason. I don't doubt that he could if he wanted to, though, like he did the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, the thing about the hidden will of God that is that it could also include his decretive will, like all the saints that he has predestined. Now, I would categorize this as a part of his of will, but we don't have that full list because basically what I'm saying is the category that I want to talk about is the will of God that has not been revealed to us yet. But a lot of us want to know the hidden will of God. We want to know the will of God revealed to us. Questions like, who should I marry? Where should I work? And things of that nature. And for the most part, God has every right to keep it hidden if that's what He finds pleasing. But lots of people take this as incentive to try and pry, to try to pry God's will open, so to speak. And so you have to pray more, you have to fast more, you have to increase your faith and so on. And sometimes that's exactly what we are called to do. Look at the life of Daniel. When he had a vision that he could not understand, he fasted and he prayed. But I'm afraid that a lot of us miss something when we jump to this conclusion first. There's a reason why the hidden will is called hidden. It's not necessarily supposed to be revealed. It's not necessarily a challenge for you to undertake to try to pry God's will open. Because there is the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God is already in your life. And what is the revealed will of God? It's the preceptive will of God. What has God commanded us? That has already been revealed. God wants us to know it and obey it. And there is no instance where the revealed will of God will contradict the hidden will of God. God has one will, albeit we'll try to categorize it so that we can try to understand it to however many categories. But there is no part of God's will that contradicts each other. So, whenever we have a question, the first thing that a Christian should most obviously do is to look for what has already been revealed. What is the revealed will of God? And does that help? And I would say for the vast majority of questions that we have, The things that we are even stumped by, it's there. So how did R.C. Sproul answer the woman asking about the will of God? Well, he said that he didn't know God's hidden will, but he knows what he has commanded. And that the Bible clearly states that if an unbelieving spouse wants to stay married, you stay married. And he noted that it was clearly something that she did not expect or want to hear. And that leads me to ask, when you're so busy searching for the so-called hidden will of God, do you ever stop to think and ask yourself, am I even obeying God's preceptive will here? Am I even obeying what has been revealed to me here? If a drug abuser or an alcoholic came up to you and asked, what is God's will for me in my life? I think the first and foremost obvious answer should be to repent and stop abusing drugs. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so there is the preceptive will that we see here. And if it has been revealed to us, then we should make it a priority to obey it. And the first command that we see given to man is to be fruitful and multiply. When people come by our church as a visitor, like my friends or pastors that come by uh, this church, they come to me and they give comments like, oh, it looks like your church really is obeying this command to be fruitful and multiply. There are babies everywhere, and they love it. And I go, praise God. I hope there are many more, but this is God's plan for man. And by the time we get to now verse 10 of the passage that I read, it should start to make sense. So all this is to set up starting from verse 10. And verse 10 to 14, let me just read it one more time. It says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. This section, seems like a random insertion right here in the text where it's talking about Adam and then even Eve. But it's not. A river here can be translated as the river as well. It's a simple article in the Hebrew, wa. And it's the river or a river. And I won't spend too much time on this river part uh, because we do have to get to marriage. But um, Pastor James, two weeks ago, did a marvelous job exegeting Ezekiel 47. I want to repeat what he said. I'll encourage you to take a listen. But it, this will make a lot of sense if you understand Ezekiel 47. It's out of Eden that this water flows. And then it's out of Eden it becomes four rivers. And it's from these rivers we see all sorts of riches like delium. By the way, delium is now understood as a yellow aromatic resin that comes from a tree. That's not probably the same delium as the Bible here mentions, because if you look at numbers 11,7 or uh, Exodus 16:31, it's supposed to be white, like manna was like delium. Anyway, so delium, which might be lost now, I don't know, uh, was there. Onyx and gold. And so if you look at it and you start to put things together, you see the imagery of Ezekiel 47, then Eden is portrayed as a temple. When compared to Ezekiel, that means Eden wasn't just simply a paradise because of the abundance of food, but it was paradise because this was the place where God would reside on earth. This is a place of worship. Eden was the first temple so to speak a second point that we can draw from the section is that god has plans for man as he would expand and grow and mature he would use those riches outside of eden as well he didn't just randomly place things outside of eden he would have man eventually use those things outside And later on, we actually see when the Israelites build the temple, they bring in things from the outside. So you bring in things from the outside like gold and dedicate it to God. And it's in this place of worship that God gives commands. And it's the commands that we went over in verse 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Many people, even as a kid, maybe you, don't, you even haven't gone to church, but many remember this portion of when God gives the commands but only tend to remember the negative reinforcement. This is not true. Look at it again. It's important to remember the positive. While our translations have it as you may surely eat, that's the positive portion of the commandment. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's translated from the Hebrew, and those Hebrew words just mean eat, eat. So you would have heard it as eat, eat of every tree in the garden. This is a show of God's incredible generosity. He plates the trees that's pleasing to the, to the eye and also delicious and something that nourishes and replenishes and helps man grow. He wants man to enjoy the pleasures that God has created. And it very much looks like he created all these things for Adam to enjoy. But the prohibi- prohibition, the negative reinforcement, the prohibition is also important to take note of because of, the, because of what is implied. The opposite is implied by the allowance. In the allowance of God, there is life then. In the prohibition of God, there is death. God wanted to make sure Adam understood this, that morality outside of God leads only to death. But as we will see, Adam and Eve will choose death rather than life by wanting knowledge outside of God. And again, God did not say if Adam ate of the fruit that he would be punished or reprimanded he said that on that day you will die. And perhaps there was some knowledge that Adam gained from eating the tree, but it was the knowledge that he would one day die. And it's once God gives Adams these injunctions, we come to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is the first time we see in the creation narrative something not good, and it's deemed not good by God himself. It is not good that man should be alone. This aloneness is something that God names, not good. And some might be surprised at this. You grew up in the church, you know, isn't this kind of implying that God isn't enough then? Are you saying that God isn't enough if it's not good that man is alone? Because if he was enough, why would would Adam be considered to be alone? And this is where I believe this culture of Jesus is my buddy or Jesus is my boyfriend has really done us damage in viewing the Bible. The Bible does say Christ will be our all in all. And it also says that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This aloneness isn't about God not being enough, but it is about his design. His design for man was that he would be a social being. This is why even though there is good doctrine and preaching in a church perhaps, You long for fellowship, don't you? You long to have fellowship. And on that subject, let me say that I have always thought, I personally have always thought that if you join a church, you need at least three to five years to start laying down roots before you can see anything. However, I recently heard from a well-respected pastor in California that three to five years is nothing. That you need more. That is just the beginning, but needless to say, anything less than is not something that you can consider. So, when choosing a church, find a church with solid doctrine, and then know that it may take you years to start putting roots down, but those roots will be well worth it because the soil is rich. The doctrine is the soil, right? Well, my point is, man is a social being, and but we are in a social crisis right now. Researchers are now saying that loneliness has become a public health crisis. It has a, loneliness has a greater health risk than obesity and is as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. One meta-analysis that I've read, that means um, it's an analysis over 70 studies covering over three million people. It showed that social isolation, Loneliness and living alone can increase mortality risk by 29%, 26%, and 32% respectively. And this is after adjusting for age, gender, and socioeconomic status and pre-existing conditions. If you live alone, your mortality risk goes up 32%. Stop living alone, people. I don't know why we want to live alone. Stop living alone. We are not meant to do that. I know this is uh, rough on some of us here, but I'm not trying to point fingers. This is just statistics I'm reading here. But this is also showing us something incredibly important. God doesn't assuage our loneliness by somehow supernaturally filling us up with some kind of anti-loneliness serum. But he creates a wife for Adam, which leads to a community, which leads to the world as we know it. With social media now taking the place of actual physical communities, this uptick in suicide rates and loneliness epidemics are astounding. Virtual does not make up for physical. No matter how much you think you can trick the brain into thinking that if I do this, it will release endorphins, it doesn't pan out because man isn't simply chemical. And the social aspect then to man is not only physical, then it's also spiritual. The physical is tied to the spiritual and vice versa. This means that society as a whole benefits when man is not alone. And the reversal of that is true as well. When man is alone, society loses out on the benefits that man could have brought. A Harvard professor named Robert Putnam finds in his book, Bowling Alone, It even showed that regular attendance in a house of worship is the most accurate predictor of altruism. That means giving, if you give to, like, good causes. It's the most accurate predictor, more than any other factor that he was able to see. A worshiper gathering with the saints is more likely to be a volunteer at a soup kitchen than someone who thinks that they could just pray alone at home or even not even pray. And this is the reality and truth that we are shown in the Bible. Even in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Physically meeting together is a vital part of our human experience. So let me encourage you all, don't give up meeting together. Don't give up meeting together. Lay those roots down. Here in a covenant community, the church, it is vital to your life. But how does God here alleviate Adam's plight of loneliness he says this he says it's not good that man is alone but he says this i will make a helper fit for him now there are two things that i would like us to take away from this first helper in the hebrew is from the word azer azer is used 17 times in the bible and most times almost every time except these two times here we see in this place here it's used in reference to to god so when helper is used it's in used in reference to god so helper in this context does not mean someone lower if anything you would have seen this as then someone stronger azer is someone that you you know that helps you because you don't have something so who can help someone in need someone weaker or stronger But the next word helps put Azer into a more proper context. Otherwise, we would believe women are better than men. This is not true. Men aren't better than women either. This is also not true. The world always goes to those extremes, doesn't it? But the next word helps put Azer into the proper context, a helper fit for him. The word neged is used here. Neged in the modern Hebrew means equal. It means equal to him. So it's not someone above or below Adam. It's someone equal. If we are to further dissect the word, neged is used in the Bible to mean face toward. So as I'm facing you, the Bible would have explained that or described that as neged, right? Like when Joshua would face the congregation and read from Moses' law, it would say Joshua, neged, faced them. So it's a face toward or opposing each other. And so, in one very real sense, the help that man would receive from his azir would be the help of challenging the man. And this is why some have joked that in the beginning, God created man, male and critic. But the sexes were meant to be complementary. And that's what it essentially means to be opposite him. It's meant to be Complementary. This is something that we have lost in our not just vernacular but in our understanding of men and women. There is a most famous quote from 1970 from an American feminist who said, A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. It was meant to be witty, it was meant to be humorous. Ha ha ha, a woman needs a man like a fish. Needs a bicycle. This quote is still used today over 50 years later. Obviously, this is not true because woman was made for man. And man is not good without a woman. But the origin of the phrase is what I want to get to. The origin of the phrase, the person who made this phrase up took it from another phrase. She took it from a philosopher who wrote, A man needs God like fish needs a bicycle. I find that truly ironic that it's from this godless ideology that modern feminism has taken one of its most famous quotes. And so this is what God says that he will do to answer man's loneliness. He will create a helper fit for him. But before he does that, he does something. From 19 to 20, God parades every animal around Adam and then has Adam name them. And he does this for at least two reasons that we ought to consider. Number one, he is showing that Adam has dominion over the animals. The animals are not above Adam and they are not equal to Adam either. And number two, animals cannot replace humans. This might seem controversial to some i don't know why but apparently now it is the closest animal we might have as a helper may be the dog but the bible shows us that even the dog cannot replace the relationship that we have with another human being dogs are great animals i love dogs but the bible doesn't say this is this is why words are important the bible doesn't say that adam couldn't find a helper You can find a helper in a dog who can deny that that's absolutely true the bible doesn't say adam couldn't find a helper it says adam could not find a helper fit for him as great as dogs are they are not our equals they are not fit for us so why does god say it is not good for man to be alone and not immediately then provide the woman why does he parade all the animals in front of him first because adam is to realize himself that he cannot find a helper fit for him in all these animals. What that does is that it prepares Adam to receive the gift of a woman. And this principle, I believe, still holds up today. If someone wants to marry your daughter, as a father, you want that boy to live up To being your daughter's husband when you don't know how to appreciate the gift you squander it then imagine squandering the most precious gift god has prepared for adam what does what god does is then put adam he surrounds him he names the he has him named the animal adam recognizes that none of these animals are equal to me are fit for me can be my helper in this way And then he puts Adam in a deep sleep, takes one of his ribs, creates the woman. So out of man, God creates woman. Out of his side, he creates his helper. Matthew Henry has a most famous line where he would have commentary on this passage. And he says this, the woman is not out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, But out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. The woman was made to be bound up with Adam in every way, and God brings her to Adam, and that's where we see the first marriage. The marriage takes place in the sacred temple garden, and it signifies that marriage is sacred, and this is the ideal state that God wants. God even plays the role of the attendant to the bride. That means like the father of the bride walking the bride down to meet her groom. And this is now what we still do as tradition where fathers would pass down the bride to the future husband. This tradition is passed down to us by God. God gives man his wife. And after God brings the woman out to Adam, Adam breaks out in poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last he has found his counterpart, a helper fit for him. She is made from Adam and yet she is a whole new being. And it is in this new creation that God reconciles what was not good before. This is the first and last time that Adam actually speaks before the fall. And it's the first use of the man, the word man and woman in Hebrew here. The word for man here isn't Adam. He uses the word ish and the woman, the word woman is isha. Adam was named, he would name his wife in relation to himself now. First, Adam was named out of the ground, but now he names himself in relation to his wife. And by naming his wife, this shows his authority in his newfound home. In the ancient world and in the world today, naming something implies the authority to govern. You name your children, you raise them, you govern them. He named his wife. This shows that man is to govern his household well. And that's where we continue to go on to verse 24, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He was once under the governance of his parents, and now he shall go to govern his own family. This is the maturation of man. This therefore that we see in verse 24 is a conclusory remark for the reader to understand what to take away, make sure you take this away about marriage. A man leaves his father and mother, that means he has to leave his dependence on his father and mother, then to be ready to marry and bond to his wife. Every marriage points to the divine ordination of this first one. This is the archetype of marriage. And it shows us that marriage has a priority over the parental bonds. So the marital bond has priority over the parental bond, and this should supersede every culture. It doesn't matter what culture you are from. The marital bond supersedes the parental bond. And by leaving his parental bond, the husband makes his wife a priority, and this priority should take precedence over other Priority. This one-flesh unity points to a monogamous relationship in a covenant commitment. This is the ideal that God is showing us here in chapter 2. And it is for a reason. Why does God show us this? It ultimately points to the marriage between Christ and his church. It's the father who gives the bride the church, to the Son. This is all over the Bible, but let me just take one inference from John chapter 17, verse nine, where Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is Jesus praying to the Father. This is about marriage, and marriage is about Christ and his church, ultimately. The marriage that we have been given benefits the individual, benefits us, the individual, the family, the community, and society at large. And what we are seeing is what happens today. What we are seeing is what happens when the institution of marriage in a society falls apart. And we start asking questions, well, why can't they get married? Or why do I have to get married? Why can't anybody just get married? Why do people get married at all? Why can't just three people live together? Why not polyamory? And all these questions continue to progress and progress, and you see society continue to fall apart. Why is this happening? It is because the institution of marriage, once again points to christ loving the church and giving himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish And I want to tie this in with our final verse, verse 25, where it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The result we see is that both man and wife were both naked and not ashamed. There is an openness and trust in this relationship. This is what it was meant to be. This is what marriage was meant to be. But with the fall, there is a loss of innocence The loss of openness, the trust is gone. We need a barrier of clothing to protect us. And the only thing that we can be covered by, however, to cover our sins is not simply clothes. The clothes that we wear also point to something. The only thing that could cover our sins and our shame is the blood of Christ. Why is marriage so important? It points to his preceptive will. It shows God's character and his design for humanity. We see that maybe once this was hidden, but it is, it is revealed through Christ as our marriage, even our marriages now, point to the marriage between Christ and his church. This is so beautiful. This is so ultimate that we are not to lose sight of this. It's wonderful. Marriage will benefit you it will help you mature. It will help you grow. It's a part of your life stage. You need it. You need it not just for yourself, but you need it for the world to survive and even thrive. But it points to something even greater, is my point. It just doesn't end there. Marriage isn't simply so that the world does well. It's not simply for human flourishing alone. It points to the marriage between Christ and and his church. And this is why we are here. We recognize that God has chosen us to be his bride. And that's why it should now reflect backwards into our marriages. If we recognize that marriage points to something, what that thing points to should now dictate how we have our marriages here, should it not? So that's why Husbands, love your wives well. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, wives should submit everything to their husbands. I'm not making this up. I'm just quoting Ephesians chapter 5 word for word here. But this is what you ought to do, because this is what is pleasing to God, and it shows us God's plan for his church. And this is a glorious plan. That's why marriage is glorious, because it is showing God's glorious design for us. How God makes something not good, and then good, goes from our aloneness to then our togetherness, and then points to Jesus Christ. It's Christ who ultimately does fulfill our every need. He gives us all that we need. It is out of his wisdom and out of his abundance that we get to sit here and to even listen to the word of God and by the power of his Holy Spirit be changed. So once again, let me encourage you all. Live lives according to God's will as he instructs you for this is good for you and it is pleasing to God. Praise be to God who gives us every good gift, for he is the Father of lights. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your wonderful precepts. We thank you for giving us the gift of marriage and we thank you for calling us to be your bride. All these things we recognize as a gift and as a privilege and as an honor to be your child. We ask God that we would be able to live out what you have commanded and what you ask of us so that we would honor your name and worship you as you deserve. Oh God, forgive us of the times where we have not taken what you have commanded us seriously and we have broken your laws, especially when it comes to this institution of marriage. So please give us this time to repent, turn back, and to rightly commune ourselves with you. Let's take this time to pray, and as we have heard from the Word of God, lift our hearts to God, asking that we would also see marriage rightly, as God has shown us in His Word, and live out our lives in accordance with His will. Let's pray.